0: to the Paracronicle Almanac. From the great American Pacific Northwest, greetings and welcome to another edition of the Paracronicle Almanac. I'm Jonathan Hawk. Well, I can almost smell the Christmas cookies baking in the oven, not too far from where I'm sitting now, and I'm excited for the Christmas season that is nearly upon us, and I hope that you are also ready to uh, enjoy the holidays with family and friends both near and far and whether you're distancing or not just having that time to reflect on the year laugh a little cry a little bit and just enjoy that time with family and also taking a, a time to uh, to yourself and reflecting on on how the year went and really more importantly getting yourself relaxed uh, and psyched for the, the year to come, because hopefully 2021 is a lot better than 2020 was, and you're ready to take charge in the new year. But happy holidays, and I hope the weeks ahead are filled with lots of love, laughter, and maybe a, maybe a nice present or two. Who knows? Who knows what's going to be under that Christmas tree or at that holiday party? Now, before we get into this week's news, we have a few smaller follow-ups from previous programs. In a recent episode, we had a story about the Chinese Chenge 5 spacecraft that landed on the moon to collect samples of dirt from its surface. Well, it thrust itself off the surface about a week ago, reconnecting with its return ship, and has since landed back on Earth. Uh, While the samples have returned to Earth safely... Its delivery system that was left on the moon has reportedly lost communication with Earth. Now, according to sources inside of China, this was an anticipated outcome due to the impact of the craft on the moon, uh, which was to primarily kick up dust, uh, moon dust from my understanding, but the mission was nevertheless successful overall. So a big congratulations to the scientists and engineers that were responsible for this really quite... uh, Quite important and quite complex mission to the moon. Congratulations for littering the moon. That was once pristine, aside from the countless craters and that giant American rover still sitting up there. Your 50 Lunar Buck citation is in the mail. You're welcome. Meanwhile, the Japanese asteroid probe Hayabusa 2 has been recovered in Australia after returning to Earth from a direct encounter with the asteroid Ryogu. And while not fully analyzed by scientists just yet it has been revealed that black dust has been seen on the outer shell of the capsule a sign that there should be more inside the long distance traveler now remember hayabusa 2 traveled nearly 300 kilometers to collect what is essentially a bag of dust but a bag of dust that may contain secrets to the early history of our solar system which in mastercard terms is priceless But sincere congrats to that team as well. It's always impressive to see the the precision of these missions given the distance and size of the objects when compared to the rest of the galaxy. The samples will be shared with NASA and a host of other international space agencies for study in the coming months and years. Can't wait to see some of the results from that mission. Very exciting. And one last bit of space-related news. Don't forget about the... Christmas star as it's being called uh, the Christmas star convergence of Saturn and Jupiter this Monday December 21st it's the closest those planets will appear next to one another in eons literally and it's the closest they've been to one another since the 1200s so if the skies are clear go have a look and report back who knows what else you might see it also feels like the monolith craze may be easing ever so slightly though more of a slow simmer than boil there there were some additional sightings of new monoliths around the globe. Several here in the U.S. have been found since the original Canyonlands monolith in Utah, uh, including another monolith in Utah, also Gainesville, Florida, and even Santa Clarita, California. At least, At least I have that on good authority that there is, just to name a few, and around the world as well, in Britain and even in Iran. It seems like the quality of these monoliths are decreasing slightly with each one that's found, but... Strange nonetheless. And just a reminder, we're still looking for strange trucker stories, paranormal or otherwise. So give us a call in the Parachronicle hotline at 818 570 0126 if you'd like your story featured on a future episode. That's 818 570 0126. Save it in your contacts for that moment you're driving down a highway and you see a Sasquatch crossing the road or a unexpected UFO encounter. You never know when it's going to happen. So Again, that's 818-570-0126. That's the Parachronicle hotline. Or you can always reach me at hawk at theparachronical.com. That's H-A-W-K-E at theparachronical.com. Or just head on over to theparachronical.com, hit up our contacts tab, and all our info is there as well. And finally, next week, we'll still have a new episode ready for you at Christmas, though abbreviated. And with a slight twist, rather than the usual UFO space news updates, we'll be looking a little to the north. The North Pole, that is. So join us for a special episode of the Parachronicle Almanac. So with that, let's get down and dirty with the news. I'm going to butcher names in this story. I'm just warning you now. But this from CNN archaeologists have uncovered a new section of a famous aztec tower of skulls in mexico city the structure called Huey zampotli was first discovered five years ago by archaeologists with the urban archaeology program of mexican government national institute of anthropology and history now archaeologists said they have found an additional 119 human skulls in the eastern side of the tower According to a statement from INAH, it is believed to be one of seven collections of skulls that stood in the Aztec capital, again, I'm going to butcher this Tenochtitlan. A total of 484 skulls had previously been identified at the site, which archaeologists say dates back to at least a period between 1486 and 1502. The newly uncovered wall is comprised of the skulls of men, women, and children who were likely killed during ritual sacrifices to the gods, according to the statement. At least three children were discovered among the skulls identified by their smaller build and developing teeth were part of the cultural and identity practices of the Aztecs, according to the INAH release. Although we can't say how many of these individuals were warriors, perhaps some were captives destined for sacrificial ceremonies. Archaeologist Raul Barrera told uh, Reuters, we do know that they were all made sacred, turned into gifts for the gods or even personifications of deities themselves. Many structures built by the Aztecs in the city of, here's that word again, Tenochtitlan." now Mexico City, were destroyed after the city came under control of Spanish soldiers and indigenous allies in the 1500s, the release states. As a result, many skull towers in the area were razed, and scattered fragments have since been recovered by anthropology teams. Despite their destruction, they left a lasting impression on those that witnessed them, with conquistadors Hernán Cortés and Bernal Diaz Castillo mentioning them in writings of their conquests. I N A H said, and if that wasn't enough, additional skulls were found at the same site. It was revealed days later, they keep finding them. That is terrifying. This one comes from Traverse City Record Eagle out of Traverse City, Michigan. The headline Central Lake UFO researcher inspires internet through Netflix documentary from Central Lake. John was trying to contact aliens. That's all the information users know about John Shepard before watching Matthew Killip's documentary John Was Trying to Contact Aliens, which is now on Netflix. When they finish, they want to know more, not only about Shepard's work, but the circumstances surrounding his life growing up at his grandmother's cottage in Central Lake. There's definitely something very real, said Shepard. I just had to figure out what it is and what powers it. The 16-minute film directed and produced by Killip explores Shepard's 30-year mission to make contact with extraterrestrial life through a homegrown research effort he called Project Strat. When Shepard gives up on his search, he meets his husband and partner John Latrenta in 1993 and closes the film with a heartwarming line, quote, so a contact had been made, quote. By present time, Project Strat is no longer in operation. Most of the original equipment from his grandmother's central lake cottage is in storage. Lamb, his grandmother, died in 1988, and Shepard now lives in Kewaden. But Shepard said the memories of the project stay with him to this day. He has done hundreds of interviews on his self-funded search for extraterrestrial life and UFO phenomena to the point where Netflix is just another name in the bucket. Project Strat has its roots dating back to 1971 when, at the time, he sent binary sequences with a vertical marker beacon without necessarily intending to receive a response back. His hope was to use his equipment to lure a spacecraft over Antrim County so that he could see the aliens fly close to his laboratory. We weren't necessarily expecting them to send a signal or talk to me, Shepard said. That would have been pretty far out. Early on, Shepard believed there was circumstantial evidence his equipment was working. In the fall of 1973, Shepard recalled discussion of mass UFO sightings all over Antrim County. His instruments started to experience electromagnetic interference and detect activity in the atmosphere, primarily in power lines and electromagnetic modulation coming into his equipment. Shepard had just started broadcasting the binary signal about a year prior to that, fading in, fading out, as though these things were traveling in power lines and getting electromagnetic field and inducing a field into them, Shepard said. The service department was getting flooded with calls of sightings all over the area. That was kind of coincidental, if you will, and I don't believe in coincidences that much, he says. Over time, Project Strat evolved as Shepard broadcasted music that could be listened to half a million miles into outer space, about the distance from Earth to the moon. He chooses music as his medium because he said it represents a universal language. If UETs are out there, we'd like you to tune in tomorrow night at 9 p.m. for more cultural music, Shepard says in the film on an archived news story. He purchased and built all of his equipment by himself, some of which he salvaged from the dumpster of the local general telephone and electronics provider. Later, Shepard arranged with GTE to acquire or purchase equipment for his research before it was thrown out. You have to remember, this was not funded by the government, Shepard said. You had to be resourceful to find your components and parts. Central Lake native, Aaron Draplin, now 47, said he recalls as a kid witnessing Shepard searching through trash cans for parts. At that time, he said he was riding bikes and probably snickering. Unfairly, stupid people would say you need to be careful, Draplin said. He was misunderstood. Draplin said the documentary moved him particularly because he grew up in the same small town of 939 people that Shepard did. He sees it as a sign that the town is becoming more open-minded than it was when he was growing up there. It was a reminder to me that the community is changing to accept him and his partner, to accept his musical eccentricity, Draplin said. Killip, who filmed and edited the film without any assistance outside of the title sequence creation, said he discovered Shepard's story in a photo of him next to his grandmother and equipment in the book in advance of the landing. When he tracked him down and discussed the idea of doing a film on Shepard's life over the phone, he knew then a story about aliens was much bigger than just a story about science. His parents were unable to raise him and he was in some ways alone as an only child, Killip said. Then, as a young man, he was gay in Northern Michigan in the 1980s. He's always been very upbeat about it. I think that may not have always been the easiest thing and in some ways was probably really isolating. The idea of a young man trying to make contact with something beyond everything outside of everything was quite moving to me. Well, the film premiered uh, at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival in late January and is now on Netflix as of August 20th, 2020. So go take a look. I haven't actually watched this yet, but I do plan on it. Uh, So take a look and let us know what you think. I'd be interested to get some, some comments from you guys. And now onto our China Watch section, This is from I-24 News, though I've seen this reported in a lot of places, so you can find this anywhere out on the Internet. Headline, a massive Chinese Communist Party data leak exposes infiltration into Western countries. Unprecedented data info shows how CCP members have been embedded in some of the world's biggest companies. A data leak of unprecedented scale has revealed the scope of how the Chinese Communist Party, otherwise known as the CCP, have successfully infiltrated into several Western countries, including Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States, according to several media outlets. The Australian newspaper it's called the australian that's the name of it has obtained a trove of information about some 1.95 million ccp members the data includes their party position birth date national id number ethnicity and even in some cases telephone numbers and 79,000 branches many of them inside companies universities and even government agencies australia's sky news reported that the database lifts the lid on how the party operates under President and Chairman Xi Jinping. The leak shows that the party branches are embedded in some of the world's biggest companies and even inside government agencies, the outlet added. It is unclear to whom the data leak would be more embarrassing, President Xi Jinping or global companies, although the leak does expose how they appear to have no mechanism in place to defend against intellectual property theft. British tabloid Daily Mail alleged that the leak shows that CCP members who pledge allegiance to communism in the party, have gained employment in British consulates and that Beijing's malign influence now stretches into almost every corner of British life, including defense firms, banks, and pharmaceutical giants. Among the companies identified as having CCP members in their employment are manufacturers like Boeing and Volkswagen, drug giants Pfizer and AstraZeneca, and financial institutions including ANZ and HSBC, according to the Australian outlet The Mercury. The data was originally reportedly extracted from a server in Shanghai in 2016 by Chinese dissidents who used it for counterintelligence purposes. Dig into this because this, like I said, this is gonna be a story five, 10 years from now, we're gonna be looking back and, and seeing these sorts of stories as things that were big red flags And I hope people are taking notice. And in Bigfoot news, uh, out of Birmingham, Alabama, a history teacher hunts Bigfoot, launches Roku channel about quest for Sasquatch. By day, Jim Sherman deals in facts as a Birmingham Groves high school history teacher. But in his free time, he hunts the elusive, some would say mythical, creature known as Bigfoot. Sherman, aged 50, has followed this quest which often takes him into the forests of Upper Peninsula, I presume Alabama, for more than three decades. Now he's taking it to the next level, with Bigfoot Hunters, a Roku video blog channel. If you're weird and interested in looking into things that aren't supposed to be out there, other people's experiences with crazy things in the woods that aren't supposed to happen, this is where to look, Sherman said of the channel, which currently has five video compilations. I try to apply as much science to the research as possible. I like to analyze the data and am really skeptical and will throw in random Bigfoot experiences. The path that led him to an extraordinary obsession with Sasquatch began when Sherman was still in fourth grade. He was fascinated by not only the idea of Bigfoot, but anything scarier, supernatural, including ghosts, the Loch Ness Monster, and UFOs. He set aside the childhood fantasies, matured and did indeed go off to college, but not far into his higher education. He had an experience he couldn't explain while camping with his father in the Upper Peninsula. Over the course of three nights, he heard sounds outside of his tent of something he identified as big, bipedal, walking on two legs. Having grown up hunting, Sherman said he knew the sounds of critters normally found in the woods and knows that deer can also sound bipedal. This was different. From inside the tent, Sherman heard things being thrown about outside, and the creatures even touched the tent. When he reached up to swat at it, Sherman thought he would be hitting a bear snout, but instead felt what he described as a a really big hand which pressed against the side of the tent. Sherman said the logical person in him knew it was not a bear, which without opposable thumbs could not have thrown objects. He reasoned that it had to be a person, but wondered why someone would mess with his tent and throw things. The mystery continued the next night, getting even stranger. While whatever it was never approached as close to the tent as it did the previous night, it commenced to shaking trees, Sherman said, making an unbelievable noise. By the third night of this, Sherman told his dad that they had to go. For a dozen years later, Sherman avoided secluded forests, and who could blame him? Where legend has it, Bigfoot lurks. But when he was about 30, he decided to face his fears and embrace his natural curiosity. He did that by research, seeking others who had similar experiences. He also joined the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, BFRO, which was founded in 1995 and whose members have a mission to resolve the mystery surrounding the Bigfoot phenomenon. That is to derive conclusive documentation of the species existence, which is done through seeking the large primates in forested regions. According to the group's website, numerous spottings have occurred and are mapped in locations across North America. And if you do get a chance to go to the BFRO website, and and check out their, uh, their database. Literally, North America is plastered with sightings all over the place in the most unlikely of places, as a matter of fact. So take a look at their website if you have a chance and see if maybe somebody's seen something near you. We continue. Sherman has been leading expeditions in search of Bigfoot for the past decade and is absolutely hooked. The expeditions feature all things he normally enjoys, hiking, camping, stories around the campfire, and research. Once you get the Bigfoot bug, it's hard to get rid of it because it's exciting, he said. There's so much weirdness out there. As an investigator, Sherman is a contact person for others who have claimed Bigfoot sightings. In his conversations with him, he said he first must verify they aren't a lunatic, which has ended some conversations early, including those purporting to have seen unicorns. Sherman says as a high school history teacher, he has a pretty good BS detector and can tell if someone is just parroting things they saw on television shows, one of which he has appeared on himself, which is finding Bigfoot on Animal Planet. He listens to them, putting more trust into those who, like himself, aren't quite sure about what they experienced and have some skepticism. The idea of a Bigfoot is awesome. An elusive, huge, hairy creature evading people for millennium, Sherman said. Will I ever find it? I don't know. The idea across cultures, a wild man is, is fascinating. So Sherman leads or follows other like-minded individuals into the woods, most often in the Upper Peninsula. He won't disclose any exact location for fear of a stampede of tourists ruining it. Like a favorite fishing spot, it's a secret, he says. On these expeditions, he uses audio recordings and teaches others to identify common woodland noises such as the sounds made by owls, martens, porcupines, and a whole lot more. He shows people how to cast a footprint they discover without tainting it. The evidence is scant, and he is frustrated when a good video or photo can't be obtained. So he hopes to one day capture something like the Patterson film, the the famous one-minute footage shot in 1967 in Northern California of what the filmmakers claim was a Sasquatch or Bigfoot. To date, his most convincing personal piece of evidence, apart from the experience in the tent as a child, has been scary growling and howling he's heard that he couldn't identify with anything that he knew. And on multiple occasions in the upper peninsula, seeing a single red eye at the height of about seven feet, which fled when approached. It's a dumb thing to think there's something that can elude all the cameras, game cameras and everything. But look at all the witness accounts, Sherman said. But it's worth having fun. Honestly, it's such a healthy hobby. At this point, I could have had a midlife crisis and grown a mullet or ride a motorcycle. Instead, I have this this silly hobby. It's like a, a wilderness CSI kind of thing. I've had a lot of weird experiences. It keeps me coming back and looking for more. That's kind of what I think we're going to be doing here on this show is looking for weird and wild experiences. What is it? uh, Dana Carvey's Dana Carvey's impression of Johnny Carson. Ed, that is weird and wild. Those are the kind of experiences I think um, we're going to be looking for here on the Parachronical Almanac and in future content on our website and perhaps some other shows we have in the works. Stay tuned for that. But this is really cool. And uh, again, check out his Roku channel. I plan on to as well. And let us know what you think. And this is a strange story. Headline Japanese man selling hyper-realistic masks featuring faces of strangers. A year into the coronavirus epidemic, a Japanese retailer has come up with a new take on the theme of facial camouflage, a hyper-realistic mask that models a stranger's features in three dimensions. Shuhei Okawara's masks won't protect you or others against the virus, but they will lend you the exact appearance of an unidentified Japanese adult whose features have been printed onto them. Mask shops in Venice probably don't buy or sell faces, but that is something that's likely to happen in fantasy stories. Okawara told Reuters, I thought it would be fun to actually do that. The masks will go on sale early next year for 98,000 yen, which is about the equivalent of $950 a piece, at his Tokyo shop, Komenya Amote, whose products are popular as accessories for parties and theatrical performance. Okawara chose his bottle, whom he paid 40,000 yen, from more than 100 applicants who sent him their photos when he launched the project in October. An artisan then reworked the winning image, created on a 3D printer. Initial inquiries suggest demand for the masks will be strong, Okawara said. As is often the case with the customers of my shop, there are not so many people who buy face masks for specific purposes. Most see them as art pieces, Okawara said. He plans to gradually add new faces including some from overseas to the lineup and finally kangaroos can learn to communicate with humans researchers say kangaroos can learn to communicate with humans similar to how domesticated dogs do by using their gaze to point and ask for help researchers said in a study published on wednesday the study involved 11 kangaroos that lived in captivity but had not yet been domesticated Ten of the eleven marsupials intently gazed at researchers when they were unable to open a box with food, according to the report. Nine alternately looked at the human and at the container as a way of pointing or gesturing toward the object. We interpreted this as a deliberate form of communication, a request for help, Alan McKelligot, the Irish researcher who led the study, told Reuters in a call from Hong Kong. Wild species are not really expected to behave as those subjects were, and that's why it was surprising. The findings challenge the notion that only domesticated animals such as dogs, horses, or goats communicate with humans, and suggest many more animals could grasp how they convey meaning to humans, the paper asserts. We've previously thought only domesticated animals try to ask for help with a problem, but kangaroos do too, concluded researcher Alexandra Green from the University of Sydney. It's more likely to be a learned behavior when the environment is right. So kangaroos can communicate with humans. I don't know if that's concerning or cool. Hmm. What do you think? Well, that's it. That's all I've got for this week. Don't forget to reach out if you see something unusual in the sky or someplace else, or if you have an interesting story to tell. You can always reach our hotline at 818-570-0126 or at www.theparachronicle.com. And this holiday season, don't forget to spread a smile or a little kindness. And until next time, keep your eyes to the sky and know that here on Earth and in the universe, we are not alone. For the Parachronicle Almanac, I'm Jonathan Hawk.